Could I ask you to please turn uh, in your Bibles to that portion that uh, Gary read to us in John chapter 15. We're not going to read it again. We will be working our way uh, through that passage together this morning. But please have your own Bibles open before you uh, as we consider this wonderful portion uh, of Jesus speaking to his disciples, speaking to us uh, as we consider this morning under the message of the blessings of abiding in Christ, the blessings of abiding in Christ. And, and that is actually going to be a two-part series. We're going to look at this uh, today and, and next week um, as there's just so much for us to consider as the Lord's people about what it means to abide in Christ and the blessings for us uh, as we do abide in Christ. As we embark on a new year, uh, I don't know about you, but already for me the past two weeks have been quite crazy busy, and, and I hope for myself and for, for you that we have not already got so consumed in the busyness uh, of the new year that we've missed the opportunity for reflection. We looked at that on the 31st of December, uh, if you were here on that occasion, but really reflection uh, on the year that has passed and, and deep consideration to the year that lies ahead. To really ask ourselves, what is most important? What is most important to you in 2024? If I could ask you to summarize your most important goal for this year ahead, what would it be? What is that one thing that if you could lay hold of it in this year, it would make all your other accomplishments fit into their right and proper place, and it would make all your disappointments this year worthwhile, if you could just get this one thing. Well, the Apostle Paul, I think, reflected on this question regularly in his own life, but in his letter to the Philippians, listen to what Paul said in Philippians 3 verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead." What was the ultimate lifelong goal for the Apostle Paul? Not just a, a short-lived New Year's resolution, but the very motivation of his entire life. Well, it's there. It's the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ as Lord. To, to gain Christ, to be found in him, to be clothed in his righteousness, to know the power of his resurrection, to share in his sufferings and even his death, so that by all means possible, Paul says, I might attain that, that prize of the upward call of God in Christ. Now, just to clarify, Paul is not saying that 
your desire to pass matric this year or to get your driver's license or to graduate your degree or to find a godly husband or wife or to have children or to get a good job or to get a better job through promotion or to move to a a bigger house or to travel overseas to visit your children or to reach retirement with sufficient provision or anything else like these, which are gifts from God, Paul's not saying that these things are are unimportant. But what he is saying is that all of these things he counted as nothing. He considered them as rubbish in comparison to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ as Lord. So this then raises some questions. How can I know that I am really in a living relationship with Jesus? How can I know for certain as I go into this year that I haven't been deceived, that you haven't been deceived, that perhaps we are relying on the wrong things to get us into heaven? How can we really be sure that everything else in our lives is in its proper place in relation to Jesus Christ and in relation to uh, our relationship with him? And one simple answer to come back to our title this morning is that of growth. Is there growth in your relationship with Jesus Christ? If there is no growth, well then according to Jesus, there is probably no life. Or the life that you once had is about to die. That's what I want us to spend this week and next week looking at. It's this issue of spiritual growth uh, and particularly this morning, to test our relationship with Jesus. Now, what is spiritual growth? The Bible speaks a lot about growing spiritually. The the life of the Christian is often described as growth from infancy to maturity, from death to life, from barrenness to fruitfulness, from timidity to boldness, from Folly, as we've been considering in in Proverbs, to wisdom, from darkness to light, from despair to hope, from doubt to assurance. These are all aspects of growing spiritually. And yes, some of these things, by God's grace, come sometimes quite immediately, quite quickly, at conversion or after conversion. But others take time and require a lifetime of, of committing to growing. And so there are many exhortations in Scripture, many prayers for us as God's people to grow. One of those is Colossians 1, verse 9 to 12. You can read that this afternoon. So the question is this this morning. Are you growing as a Christian? Is your inner thought life, your private aspirations, your desires and your goals, your yeah, the secrets of your heart, what you think about in private your speech and your actions, are they being transformed daily? Are they growing daily into into that which looks more and more like Jesus? Is the mind, we, we sing that song, may the mind of Christ my Savior dwell in me from day to day or grow in me from day to day. Is that true of you? Years ago, I read an illustration by Tim Keller, uh, very helpful, describing that life after the fall is, is like a downward escalator. And the Christian life begins with you at the bottom, uh, and it's, 
it's about getting to the top. And, and the only way you can get to the top is through much determination and effort. But all you have to do to go backwards on a downward escalator is nothing. I think it's a helpful illustration because for most of us, we can think back, surely, to the early days after our conversion, to those days when we were overwhelmed by the love and the grace of God for the first time. We were energized by His forgiveness. We love to read His Word. We love to communicate with the Lord in prayer. And although there were at those times in our lives many people and things trying to pull us down, even our own past sinful habits uh, and patterns pulled us down, nevertheless, we, we knew something of the supernatural strength and perseverance of God to move upward. There was definite spiritual growth and progress. But maybe if we're honest today, Yes, it's not that we've rejected God, it's not that we've turned our back on Him and walked away, but perhaps for the last year, as you reflect, the last couple years maybe, if we look back, we've simply done nothing, and we've gone backwards spiritually. Well, how can we turn this around? And how can we turn it around in terms of a vitality, not just that we once knew, but a spiritual vitality that can persevere? Perhaps you've never known something of this spiritual vitality. How can you get it? So that when we look back on, on 2024 at the end of this year, maybe in two years' time, three years' time, you will look back and you will see constant and steady progress and growth in your relationship with Jesus and the fruit of Jesus in the character of your life. Well, this passage before us, John chapter 15, is one that gives us some checkpoints to see if we are truly growing in our relationship with Jesus. But the amazing thing about this passage is that Jesus doesn't just come to us this morning and say, look, here's the list of things you need to check up on. If they're there, well done, you're good, you're fine. And if they're not there, well, then you're in trouble. Now, what Jesus does in this passage is he actually gives us five promises of blessing to those who are true, who are growing. The tests of genuineness and growth in our lives, however, are not simply a checklist, but they are actually promises. They are promises that he gives to each of us, and then they are tests which come alongside that to, to really affirm whether we are genuine in Christ or not. Now, if you didn't pick it up in the reading, and if you just glance over that passage before you, three words are crucial to understand this whole passage. And all three words come in the first two verses. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. And as you read on, you will notice that the word abide occurs 10 times in this passage, the word branch six times, and fruit six times. But the key uh, focus, the key verb in this passage is that word abide or remain. The whole passage is actually divided into two groups by those who abide in the Lord Jesus Christ and bear fruit and receive great blessing and those who do not abide in Christ uh, and they receive terrible curses. 
We're not going to study the curses this morning, but please don't ignore the warning that Jesus issues in these verses. Look at verse 2 and verse 6. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. The NIV says he cuts off. Verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. So if you are outside of Jesus Christ today, if you are entering into another year, not responding in repentance and faith to the Lord Jesus Christ, well, Jesus has nothing motivational to say to you this morning. There's nothing feel good for you in this message this morning. No, the branch which does not abide in Christ, God promises three things. Rejection in verse 2, barrenness in verse 6, and ultimately, destruction. It's a very sobering view of every single human being who is disconnected from Jesus. But the main thrust of the teaching in John 15 is not so much on the curses to those who do not abide, but rather five incredible promises of blessing to those who do abide in Jesus. So what does it mean then to abide in Jesus, to remain in him? One commentator uses the word interpenetration. Interpenetration. This is a word that I've become intimately acquainted with every winter for the last 10 years or so as my regular evening duty comes around to chop firewood for our fireplace. It started in Moy River and then we loved it so much we brought it with us to Joburg. Uh, five o'clock in the stone house is firelighting time in winter. And so that inevitably means that I have to chop some black wattle or some Namibian hardwood into smaller pieces to fit into our fireplace. I have a big axe, and I keep it sharp, and it's able to split the, the toughest and the thickest stumps of wood on one condition, on one condition that there is no side branch coming out of the main stump. Those of you who've ever chopped wood know what I'm talking about. If there is even a small little branch, almost a twig, coming out of the main stump, the axe just refuses to split the log. And the reason is because of interpenetration. The fibers of that little side branch penetrate from the outside. It goes across the grain of the main core of the stump and it runs right into the middle of the main stump. It's, it's interwoven, it's intertwined, so that when the axe comes down, there is just no ways that that log will split. The branch is interpenetrated into the stump. Now, this is exactly what Jesus is referring to here when he speaks of the, the branch, speaking of you and I as Christians, abiding in him who is the vine. He is calling for a deep interpenetration of the life of the Christian into the very core of the vine, who is Jesus. The very life and being of the branch is ultimately and intricately woven to and, and interpenetrated into the core of the vine. The branch, Jesus says, gains everything it is, everything it needs to be alive from the vine. The two are inseparable. And permanently so. 
This word abide or remain literally means to permanently endure or to last. It's not something you just plug on today and plug off tomorrow. No, it's a, it's a permanent abiding. So this is describing something very different to what many Christians would, would think of Christianity today, where we kind of just dip in and out of Jesus we, we dip in and out of church to get a, a spiritual boost. We, we go on a camp or we meet with a Christian friend for a cup of coffee and we, we get a spiritual lift. And then we simply go back to doing things my way until I get so low that I need another spiritual boost. And so we live like that. But no, says Jesus, the one who abides in me the one who remains in me, I promise five things to you, which if you see these things in increasing measure in your life, then you can truly know that you are a child of God. So five promises to those who abide in Christ. And the first is a life of abundant fruitfulness. A life of abundant fruitfulness. Let's read verse 2b through to verse 5 together. Every branch that does not, sorry, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. To the most successful of you out there, to the most self-sufficient, to the most entrepreneurial, did you hear what Jesus said? As you go into 2024, apart from me, you can do nothing. What an incredible promise then is this promise of a life of abundant fruitfulness. Jesus promises that if we abide in him, we will bear much fruit. I've never yet met a Christian who did not want to be fruitful for God. It doesn't make sense to live a life which counts for God. Of course, we all want that. And here, this is what Jesus promises. And he promises to everyone who abides in him, abundant fruitfulness. But as we're going to see with each of these promises, there is a condition or a test. And the test is this, are you committed to God's pruning? Jesus says that every branch which does bear fruit, notice it's the branches which are bearing some fruit, what does he do? He comes to prune so that it may bear more fruit. Now let's not sentimentalize this idea of pruning. Pruning is a painful thing. One commentator says that if you walk into a vineyard after the vine dresser has pruned the vine, it looks like a war zone. Ask my wife, she asked me to prune her plum tree yesterday. I'm not sure who cried more, the tree or my wife. Um, but literally, there were just hundreds of little pieces lying on the ground. There's wounds oozing from the tree, green leaves, little seedling grapes or plums in our case lying on the ground. From, from a human perspective, it just makes no sense. Why on earth would you take such a, a sharp 
pruning shear to a vine to cut it back and, and remove that which looked so promising. Well, if you return back to that war zone, if you return back to that vine a few weeks later, you will notice a life and a vigor and a fruitfulness which could never have been possible without the pruning. And so Jesus says that for every genuine Christian, for every genuine fruit-bearing branch which is attached to the vine, God will come with his pruning shears and he will cut back everything which is hindering you from being more fruitful for him. God does, does not delight in bringing us hurt or suffering arbitrarily, but he is committed to our fruitfulness and he will cut off those things which the branch has allowed to sap its energy. Those things which have caused the branch to, to stop relying on the vine. Those things which have replaced the vine as the source of life. Will it be painful? Probably. Will we understand it at the time? Possibly not. Will it make sense to us at all? Not usually when we're going through it, but will it be for our good? Absolutely. Absolutely. Jesus promises that if we remain in him and are committed to God's pruning in our lives, we will bear much fruit, abundant fruit, more than we ever imagined possible. So I think this is a sad reflection on why so many Christians today appear mostly fruitless. And I say mostly because it's not entirely, if, if we were entirely fruitless, then we, we would have been cut off. But many times we are almost fruitless because we have not been prepared to endure God's pruning. Instead, many cling on to other things other than the vine for strength and life and, and direction and security and comfort and, and identity. Many people believe the, the lie, the prosperity lie, that becoming a Christian is all about obtaining temporary blessing and comforts in this world. And so when the vine dresser comes to prune, they resist. And as he cuts things off, they try very hard to pick up the sticks and the leaves and to glue them back together and to pluck them back onto the branch. And in the process, we lose out on this incredible promise and privilege of bearing much fruit for God. So let me ask you just a very simple question. Do you desire to be abundantly fruitful for God in 2024? If so, then are you committed to his pruning in your life? Are you seeing all the temporary pain and suffering which the great vine dresser has allowed actually as a sign of his great care and love and nurturing of you as he prepares you for greater fruitfulness? Well, the second thing which Jesus promises to those who abide in him is unlimited answer to prayer. I'm starting to sound like a health, wealth, and prosperity preacher here this morning, but who doesn't want that? Who doesn't want that promise for you for this year? Just look at verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. It really doesn't get better than this, does it? Jesus promises that whatever you ask for, whatever you wish for, 
you ask God, it will be done for you. I think one of the reasons why prayer is such a neglected discipline amongst Christians today is because we don't actually believe Jesus. We, we don't really believe that there is power in prayer. We don't really believe that God will answer, which is why so few Christians pray. John Knox, he was a minister in the Protestant Reformation in Scotland in the 16th century, and it's reported that Mary, Queen of Scots, said this of John Knox, I fear the prayers of John Knox more than all the assembled armies of Europe. Where's that kind of praying today? Look at what Jesus promises to the branches who abide in him. If we abide in him, we can ask whatever we wish and it will be done for us. Now, this is a, a most incredible promise. It gives us access to the unlimited power of a prayer answering God. But there is a condition, a condition which John Knox and George Muller and so many other great prayer warriors of the past deeply understood, and that is the condition that we are to be committed to God's word. Jesus says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, then ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. What a challenge for our superficial Christianity today. The kind of name it and claim it praying that we so often hear if we're honest, very few Christians spend even five minutes in their Bibles every day, if that. Perhaps you read a verse that pops up on your cell phone, maybe a paragraph of fluff that goes along with it, and you think, I've done my spiritual duty. I want you to see that Jesus uses the same word for abide here. He says, if you abide in me, if you remain, if you're interpenetrated in me, and if my words abide in you, if my word interpenetrates you, if my word is interwoven into the very core of your being, if my word governs the way that you think and speak and act, if my word is changing you, nourishing you, feeding you, Jesus says, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. And there's no risk in that. Because people who abide in Jesus and his word abides in us will only ever ask him things that are in accordance with his will. Are you perhaps wondering why God does not seem to have answered your prayers lately? Well, James says that we should ask, but then we receive not because we've asked wrongly. We ask amiss. And why do we ask amiss? Because we have not committed ourselves to God's word. We cannot honestly say that God's word abides, remains, penetrates, permeates all of our being. I'm busy reading a book that someone gave to me over December, uh, speaking about all the things that we are losing as human beings in our sort of technology-driven age. And um, it's not written by a Christian, but it's very insightful. And one of the great challenges of our modern day is an ever-decreasing uh, attention span. And that applies just as much to the world out there as to us as Christians. Digitally connected people are scientifically shown to have less and less concentration. Everything we consume today is delivered in short bursts of tweets or posts or 
Even YouTube now doesn't really rely on you watching videos, it relies on you watching shorts, 30 seconds. We are the generation which has the greatest access to the Word of God of any generation in history ever, period. And yet we appear to be the spiritually weakest generation, most superficial generation. And I think it's because of this fact that the Word of God no longer abides in us. We hardly know it, let alone abide in it and let it abide in us. Look at the treasures that are there for us, uh, unlimited answer to prayer, if we abide in Christ and his word in us. Thirdly, the third promise which Jesus lays out for us to abide in him is this, complete assurance of salvation. Again, what a wonderful promise. I've never met a single Christian, and I don't think I ever will, but if you're that person, come and speak to me afterwards, who does not desire to know for certain that you are truly saved. That when you die, that you know for certain that you are going to heaven, that you truly are a child of God. Assurance is the, the Christian's holy grail. Everybody wants to find it. Look at verse 8. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. There's assurance, proof that we are Christians if we abide in Christ. One of the most draining experiences in life is to be unsure, to be filled with doubt, to, to be in limbo, in between. It's exhausting. And so it is spiritually. If we are not sure about our standing with God, it drains us of our spiritual vitality. It, it saps us of our energy and confidence. And here Jesus comes and he promises to every single Christian, to everyone who abides in him, Assurance, the proof to know for certain that you are saved. Who doesn't want that? But there is a test. There's a condition, and it's that we are committed to God's glory. He says, by this my Father is glorified. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. We've seen before We've looked through the Gospels, that portion where Jesus says on that day, men will stand before him and say, Lord, Lord, did we not do this in your name? Did we not do that in your name? Did we not bear fruit in your name? And Jesus will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. Here Jesus gives us the key to understanding that. Jesus is not interested in the so-called outward fruit or the outward deeds of religiosity and mechanical obedience Jesus is looking for fruit which glorifies the Father. And so this really cuts right through the, the motives, the outward facade of our Christianity, doesn't it? It gets to the heart of our motives. Don't tell me what you do for God. Don't tell me what you're planning to do for God in this year. Tell me why you are doing what you do for God. Tell me why you are planning what you are planning for God this year. Are you planning and doing everything in your life to glorify him? Paul says, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink or anything else, you do it all to the glory of God. Are you committed in your conversations, in your business decisions, in your leisure activities, in your choice of a spouse, 
in leading of your family, in raising your children, in the use of your finances, in your position of influence at work, in your giving and ministry and service, are you committed to glorifying God? Or are you actually committed to your own glory and what you think you will get out of this kind of outward Christian fruit and service and ministry? But it's all for yourself. If you can honestly say that as you head into 2024, you are committed to God's glory, then Jesus promises that you will know complete assurance of salvation. You will prove to be one of his children because it's only a true child of God that seeks the glory of God above everything and anything else in his life. So Jesus has given us three incredible promises to those who abide in him. Uh, But because it's January, wait, there's more. There's more. And if you abide in Christ, Jesus promises, in the fourth place, a deep experience of his love. It says, if Jesus has been keeping some of the best for last, because the promises just keep getting better and better. Look at what Jesus says. Verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Let me ask you this. Could we ever grasp the depths of the infinite and perfect love which exists between God the Father and God the Son? Of course not. We can maybe get a glimpse of it from Scripture. But until we get to heaven one day, we will never be able to comprehend, and possibly even not then fully, the magnitude and the perfection and the purity of the love which exists between the three persons of the Trinity. And yet Jesus says here, if you, Christian, Honey Ridger, if you abide in me, I love you with the same love which my Father has for me. And I want you to abide in that love. I want you to abide in that love. I want my love to surround you, to envelop you. I want your whole life to be permanently and enduringly interpenetrated by my love for you. Jesus is using the the deepest possible language for the experience here of God's love. Who of you doesn't long to know that you are loved. Even the hardest person in the world, when they go into their bedroom and they close the door and they let down their God, they deeply desire to be loved. And here the God of the universe, the the only being whose love ultimately matters, doesn't matter how many people on earth love you. If his love is not yours, everything else means nothing. Here the God of the universe comes and he promises that if we abide in him, he has already loved us with the most infinite love of the Father that the Father has for the Son, and he wants us to remain in that forever. And so the practical implications of this are, are truly awesome. We won't have time to unpack this today, but just think for a moment about your need to be loved by others. Think about your need for approval and commendation, your desire to be affirmed, your reaction when you are criticized, your response when you are disappointed, 
Everything changes when you realize that you are perfectly loved by Jesus. And you are loved with the greatest love that exists in all the universe. But again, there is a condition, there's a test. Are you committed to God's commands? Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Then he says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Now, I can perhaps hear some of you raising an objection, but hang on, Clinton, isn't salvation all by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone? Aren't you getting all legalistic here again? There's no love in law. We are children of grace. Well, let's test that. Let's read on. Look at what Jesus says. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as the Father, um, just as I've kept my Father's commands and abide in his love. Is the Father's love for Jesus conditional? Of course not. They enjoy the most perfect relationship of mutual love possible. And yet Jesus has no problem to tell us that he keeps his Father's commands and so abides in his love. There's no legalism in love. On the contrary, the very evidence that I'm unconditionally loved, the very evidence that I'm a child of grace, is that I will commit to obeying Jesus in everything, just as Jesus commits to obeying the Father in everything. Our obedience to God is the evidence that we are in a relationship of love with Him. Well, is, there possible, uh, possibly, uh, is it possible that there could still be one more promise to those who abide in Christ? And there certainly is. In the final place this morning, we see that Jesus promises that those who abide in Him will know complete and abounding joy. I think the devil has pulled a blind one on us as Christians, convincing the majority of Christians that, life, that the life of a Christian is one of morbidity and dullness and dreariness. Oh, you know, I just have to carry my cross and follow Jesus. You know how many sacrifices I've had to make for Jesus. Really? Look at what Jesus says in verse 11. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Full. A Christian who wallows around in self-pity with a chip on his shoulder and who frowns at anything joyful is a sad case of an identity crisis. And so it really saddens me sometimes to see some of the most miserable and grumpy people on this planet being those who claim to be Christians. It's wrong. So Jesus lifts the lid here on, on the blessings in the fifth place by promising us complete and abounding joy. Let me ask you this. Who in all the universe do you think understands the concept of joy best? True joy. True happiness, true delight, joy that is unaffected by the limitations of sin or human experience and weakness. Who understands joy best? Well, of course, the answer is God, because He's the source of all joy. Now, look at the massiveness of this final, I don't know if that's a word, but look at it. It's the final promise. 
Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy, whose joy? This is the joy of God himself, the joy of God in the flesh. He says, my joy may be in you. And so it goes without saying then that if Jesus' joy, if the joy of God is in us, then our joy will be full. It will be full to overflowing, so full that we won't know how to contain it. I don't think we really have a clue as to what treasures are available to us who are in Christ. And not only available, but promised to us by Jesus himself, if only we will abide in him. As with all the others, there is a condition, or maybe it's a test. And the condition or test of this abounding joy is that we are committed to God's grace. Just look at verse 11. These things I have spoken to you. This is what I've told you, that my joy may be in you. We mustn't miss this. You see, every promise that Jesus has promised to lavish upon those who abide in him, yes, is linked to a condition or a test. And so if we're not careful, we, we may start to see all those conditions as works, whereby we feel that we must earn these promised rewards in Jesus. But what we must not miss is that everything that Jesus has promised to us is all a work of his grace. There would be no joy for us this morning if the promises were conditional upon us achieving perfection of those conditions or tests as a payment. No, everything Jesus promises us is all a gift of God's grace to us. It's, look at it, a life of abundant fruitfulness, unlimited answers to prayer, complete assurance of salvation, an ever-deepening experience of God's love and complete and abounding joy. All of these things are ours in Christ only because of the grace of God. So what about the conditions then? Doesn't Jesus attach each promise with a condition? Well, he does, kind of. The conditions laid down are, however, not the basis for the grace or the promise. They are the evidence of the grace and the promise. So let me go through those tests. Let me ask you this. Who is committed to God's pruning? Who is committed to God's word? Who is committed to God's glory? Who is committed to God's commands? Who is this list describing? A religious person? A Pharisee? A really nice person? No, the person who is committed to these things is only ever first and foremostly a person who has been saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ because of what he did on the cross. It's only those who are saved by grace who have a desire to commit to what Jesus is calling for. It's only those who are saved by grace who have the ability to commit to the things that Jesus is calling us to test. So if the desire to commit to God's grace and the ability to commit to God's grace all comes from God, surely it follows then that the blessings of the promises are only a gift of God's unmerited favor towards us in Jesus. So either this morning you are committed to God's grace at work in your life, committed to living in the light of Jesus' perfect work on the cross on your behalf, and thereby you will enjoy and you will grow and you will experience all of these gospel promises of Jesus more and more and more as you head into this year. 
or you are committed to saving yourself through your own works, leaving you rejected and barren and ultimately destroyed. So I pray that God will help us by his spirit to understand and apply his word to our hearts this morning. That this will be a year that you and I commit, not just for this year, but for the rest of our lives, to abide in Jesus. And may I encourage you to encourage one another. If you need help, come and speak to any of us as elders. We would love to help you on this journey of abiding in Christ. We need your help so that we will continue to abide in Christ. And may this year be this year of abundant fruitfulness for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning again for this wonderful word that you've given to us from John 15 of these incredible promises that are ours in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, forgive us when we have taken some of the, the blessings of these promises and, and actually sought to find our nourishment and identity in them. And so we have, in a sense, restricted our connection to the vine. Won't you help us this year afresh, every one of us, to reconnect, to reabide in the vine? Help us to remember that without Jesus, we can do nothing. So we pray, Lord Jesus, that this would be a year in which you work in us, that your, the sap of your Holy Spirit and, and the Word of God will flow freely and fully into our lives, that as we continue to bear fruit individually and as a church, it will be to the glory and the honor of your name with much joy in the Lord, we pray. Amen.